Galatians chapter 5, as we've been going through this, this sermon series and the, the fruit of the Spirit, the, the fruitful church that we're calling it, um, we, we've gone through several of them. We only have a couple left after this one. Let me, let me just read the text here. In verse 16 of chapter 5 of Galatians, it says, But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, now why did Paul write this? What was going on here? This was a, a, a church. This was a Galatian church. Galatia was a region of churches that Paul had ministered in before. And, and, and there was this uh, astonishment of Paul where, that they had begun to move away from the teaching that he had set them, where Jesus Christ is the exclusive way of salvation, where they were still embracing the idea of Jesus, but they were adding to the, uh, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were saying that you had to keep the Mosaic law and, and, and certain ceremonial uh, cleanliness laws and things like that. They were, so they were adding to it. And, and Paul is saying, I'm astonished that you moved so quickly away from the gospel. You, you, were, you were so dead set on following Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And, and then we had this, this, this great thing going, and now you're moving away from this. And, and then that moves quickly from astonishment to agony, because in chapter 4, Paul says, I, I, I fear I, I have labored over you in vain. And, and he's, he, you can just see as you read this book, this, this, um, this uh, heart of Paul coming out here. And then he has his admonition of, walk by the Spirit, you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. He says, here's the answer to our problems, to the problems of how we live our life. It's not about trying to find law codes. That's not the answer. The answer to finding about how we live in this world is this walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In verse 17, it says, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. This is what they were following. They were wanting to follow this law code in addition to Jesus Christ. And he says, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under this law code. You don't have to work because you can't. He says, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality and impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you. As I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And so here we have, we have this idea, this idea of how we live this life and what we're supposed to be doing and, and what this aspect of the fruit of the Spirit is basically, these are all part of the nature of God, okay, that then is being pushed out in our, the Spirit of God as He leads us as, and these are the things that we desire for when we are Christ followers. And so today we get to this idea of faithfulness. I don't have any slides for you today. Very simple outline. So if you're one that likes to take notes, let me give you the three points real quickly right now so you can write them down and you're not being distracted the whole time, okay? So here's the first one. First point that we're going to talk about today is faithfulness explained. Then the second point is faithfulness illustrated. And the third point is faithfulness applied. Easy outline, right? Really simple outline, okay? You're not going to see anything on screen, but those are the three points that we're going to talk about. The first one is this idea of faithfulness explained. What does it mean to be faithful? I think of the missionary um, 
William Carey, who spent uh, many years in India ministering the gospel there. William Carey, if you don't know, he was someone who is, he's called the, fa- the, the father of modern day missions. This was the, the guy who was, uh, he went and, and God mightily used him in several ways to, to promote missions in, in the more modern day context. And this is, when I speak of modern day, I'm thinking late 1700s, early 1800s. And here, William Carey, he spent many years in India and he was working very hard and he had many difficulties in his ministry there. At one point in his ministry, what he was doing is he was translating the scriptures and, and he was, and he was uh, uh, using uh, uh, printing presses that he brought in and all sorts of things just so that he could get the, 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 uh, the gospel into their language. And the part of the problem was is they had to make their own paper at times and then they shipped paper in from it. It was very expensive and it took a lot of time. And there was one day that he got word that the storehouse where all the manuscripts and all the shipment of paper, they had just gotten a large shipment of paper in it and all the things that they had made, the building had caught fire. And everything was destroyed except for five presses that they were able to pull out. While the fire was raging in the, in the one room, the room next to where the presses were, they were able to go in and pull the presses out in the midst of the flames. But other than that, their entire work was lost. Now, this was before backing up to the cloud, okay? He didn't have that. Everything that he worked for was gone. There's at one point, this happened actually before the fire, but at one point he had been there for eight years in India, faithfully giving the gospel with very little response. And he was, he was fighting the idea of discouragement and things like that, but he sent a letter to a friend, and we have a copy of this letter. And in this letter he sent to his friend, he asked for prayer. And you know what he asked for? He says, pray that I will be faithful to the end. Have you ever been there? Faithful to the end. This is what he wanted to do. He was being discouraged. He wasn't seeing fruit for his labor, but he said, pray that I will press on. So what, is, what do we mean by faithfulness here? What did Paul mean by faithfulness here? Well, the root word is the same. The, the, the noun is faith, and the verb is believe. It's the same in the original language. And then the adjective is faithfulness here. And so what, what is this talking about here? Well, when it comes into the, the adjective form that we have here, this is what we have is the idea of uh, trustworthy, dependable, reliable, loyal. It's these type of words that Paul is getting at here. It's someone that he says, you know, the fruit of the Spirit is someone who is dependable. The fruit of the Spirit is someone who is reliable, who's trustworthy. The fruit of the Spirit is someone who's loyal. Now, how do you measure that? Well, there's unfortunately, the only way to measure that is through difficulty and over time. It's the only way that you can truly find if you're going to be faithful is that if you have a life that has some difficulty involved in it because if it's a life of ease, if it's a life of just a, a, a smooth paved roads and, and, and there's no difficulty, how do you know if you're truly faithful? And this was the whole argument that Satan used against Job. Do you remember that? Do you remember what he said to God? He said, the only way, the only reason why your servant is faithful to you is because you've blessed him so much. There's no reason, there's no way in the world that he would continue to be faithful if he experienced difficulty. 
And so you know what happened there. Many of you know the story there. God says, okay, you can do whatever you want to my servant, except you cannot take his life. And terrible things happened to Job, yet Job remained faithful. He was loyal over time that's measured. Now, why would Paul bring this up? Well, obviously, the Spirit of God prompted him to include this in there. But one thing you need to understand about how the Scriptures were written is that they were written in real time, and they were written in real circumstances, and they were dealing with real issues that Paul was dealing with in this time. And so why did he consider, why did he include this idea of faithfulness? Well, I think one of the reasons why, as we attempt to explain what Paul is trying to get at here, I think one of the reasons why is because Paul was dealing with the fickleness of the Galatians. Look in chapter 4. It's just the next page back. In chapter 4, it says this in verse um, 13. It says, you know, this is Galatians 4, 13, you know it was because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me. But notice this, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. He says that I was there and I was having difficulty, I was having physical difficulty, and yet you didn't, I wasn't a burden to you because the things I was telling you about Jesus Christ, you were receiving and you received me as a messenger. That's the word angel means there, as a, as a messenger of God. And so you said, man, this is someone who has given me the very words of God here. It says, what then has become of the blessing you felt? He's saying, what changed here? For I testify that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Now, one of the things that we think that what part of the problem that Paul had of his physical problem was his eyesight. That later on, when he's writing a book, he says, see what large a letter I've written with my own hand. And so he was probably dealing with problems with his eyesight in this point. And he says, you loved me so much. You had so much appreciation for the message that I was giving you about God that if, if it was possible, you would have taken your very eyes and given them to me so I could have sight. He says, that's how much you loved me. But look at verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? You see, what was happening here is that the Galatians, they had switched their allegiance. Instead of appreciating Paul and telling him the truth, and then they began to hear these other teachers that was going against them. It was probably a little bit easier life, and, and they could do some of the things that they wanted to do in the flesh. Now Paul became the enemy. You see, what Paul was dealing with here was, uh, uh, was dealing with people that had fickle hearts. And let me just tell you, the human condition is of a fickle heart. People change their minds all the time. People change their opinions all the time. We've all experienced friendships that we thought were really good and relationships that we thought were really good, but then over time it changed. And it wounds us and it hurts us. And so what Paul is dealing with here, he's dealing with this on a very personal level, but he was also not dealing with it just personally, but on the idea of them not being loyal to him or being uh, uh, faithful to him, but it was faithfulness to God that they were moving away from. And so this idea of faithfulness here is this idea of, long, uh, uh, of being loyal or being reliable or dependable or trustworthy over time and through difficulty. 
And this is what Paul is saying, that if we're true believers in Christ, this is what God needs to be working in our hearts, that we have fidelity to the gospel, that we have faithfulness to God and to Christ, and that even in our personal relationships, we take faithfulness and loyalty and trustworthiness and dependability and reliability, we take that very seriously because that's the nature of God. He says, if you're a follower of Christ, you, if you're a disciple of Christ, then you should be, the Spirit of God should be working out, not in a perfect way, we all sin, of course, but in a way that we desire to be loyal, a desire to be dependable, a desire to be reliable, a desire to be uh, trustworthy. This is what Paul means by trustworthy. But I told you I'd also illustrate it. We explained it. We'll also illustrate it. And, and probably the best example I can think of illustrating faithfulness is a person by the name of Moses. Go back to Numbers chapter 12. Numbers 12. Way back towards the beginning of your copy of the scriptures. Numbers 12. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you there, this is page 120. I've been reading in my personal devotions through the book of Numbers recently. I'm going through super slow because um, I, I've really been just captivated by the person of Moses. I, uh, I, I tell you, if I ever write uh, a, a biography on someone, I really want to write it on Moses. Um, I, I think his leadership abilities and, and how God used him uh, are just stellar. But he didn't have it very easy. But notice what God says of Moses. I'm just going to read for context, starting in verse 1. This is Numbers 12. He says, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. Okay? So Moses marries this lady. Aaron and Miriam are upset about it. They don't like it. Could be racial, we're not exactly sure exactly why, but it was most likely probably racial. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? He says, So is Moses the only one who gets the word from God? Or well, can't we also have a word from God here? And when the Lord heard it, and the Lord heard it, it says at the end of verse two. Now, verse three, the man Moses was very meek. More than all people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord came to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam. Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent. And called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward. And he said to them, hear my words. Okay, now this is, this is you can imagine this scene here. God is appearing here in the form of this pillar of cloud. And he calls out Miriam. And he calls out Aaron. And they know what they've said against Moses. And Moses is there too. And so he says, okay, Aaron and, and Miriam, I want you to step forward. I want you to listen to me now. If you've ever been in trouble, okay, if you ever got in trouble with your parents, if you ever went, got sent to the principal's office, and then you, that authority figure looks at you and says, and gets real close to your face, and says very quietly but very sternly, listen to me. That's what's happening here, okay? So you can imagine when Aaron and Miriam are feeling in this moment, and you wonder what's going through Moses' mind at this time. What's he going to say to them? Well, this is what he says. Hear my words, verse 6. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. 
He says, yes, I do speak to other people. And I speak to them in visions. And I speak to them in dreams. Verse 7. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. Basically what he's saying there is he's the most faithful person in the house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And, be, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. Now that is a shocking scene on several levels, and we can get into all the reasons why God was angry and what happened and all that, and reasons why they were upset with the marriage. But let's not miss the picture here of the description. Did you notice the description? The God, the sovereign God, the holy God, the creator of the universe, he gave about Moses. He says he's the most faithful man. That's incredible. But this, what, this, his faithfulness was not without obstacles. I mean, he, and I don't have time to go through all of them, but let me just give you some of the obstacles that he faced here. If we see here in chapter 12, we see that there was criticism about his marriage, okay? And so he was dealing with that. In chapter 13, we would find, if you keep reading, you would find that there was discouragement from the spies that were sent to the land of Canaan. There were several spies that were sent in to see if this was the land that God was supposed to give to them. And so they went in to scope it out. They came back, and the majority of them, 10 out of the 12, came back and they said, we can't do this. How discouraging would that be? In chapter 14, we see that there's a rebellion of the people. Not just a certain number of the people, but really the majority. Almost all the people rebel against Moses at this point in Numbers chapter 14. And, say, and they accuse him of wanting to, to kill them. And he accused them, accuses Moses of wanting to set himself up as a prince and all this stuff. And, and, so, and this is not what Moses has done at all. And so the people he's leading, they're just having this rebellion against him. And then it gets even so bad. In chapter 14 and verse 10, we see that then they have actually death threats. They are attempting to stone Moses here. And yet Moses is faithful in all this. He continues to lead the people. There was mutiny in chapter 16 of Numbers where there was a whole group, the sons of Korah, and they, they tried to remove him from leadership and they wanted to set themselves up as leadership and God intervenes. And then, throughout the course of that, in chapter 16, when God appears to him, it's very obvious, if you read chapter 16, it's very obvious that the Lord is the one doing the judgment here. And he brings it upon the people, and they're judged for it. And the people, there's a plague, and there's the, first the ground swallows up Korah and his families, and then there's a plague that goes through where thousands of people die. And you know what the people do at that point? They blame Moses for God's judgment. They turn it on him. And they say, it's your fault that this is happening. And yet Moses continues to be faithful and lead and bring the people towards God at all times. So you got to ask yourself, what's the secret here? What's the secret sauce in the recipe here? Well, how is it possible that, that Moses continued to do this? Because I tell you, I want to write on Moses because I want to study on Moses because I want to know how does he have this extraordinary leadership in these times. Now, there was time he had low moments. I mean, he hit a rock when he shouldn't to because he was the, the people were complaining so much to get water. So he hit the rock and out of anger and water came out and he was judged for it. But I tell, I, I tell you, 
when I get to heaven and I see Moses, I'm just going to give him a little nod, like an understanding nod. I know why he hit the rock. I would have hit it too. He was dealing with some difficult times here. So what's the secret? Go over to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. I want you to see this in in Hebrews 11. This is going to be page 1008 if you're using the Bibles provided for you there. Hebrews 11. How was Moses so faithful? I think Hebrews helps us. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 23 says this. It says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. And you'll remember the king's edict was that all the newborn uh, babies of his background were to be killed and that he was protected. And God brought him into Pharaoh's household and through a miraculous way. Verse 24 By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, okay? Even though that would have brought him so much more prestige, so much more wealth, so much more honor, he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing, verse 25, rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. You see, I believe that the secret to Moses' faithfulness here was that his lifelong passion was to be identified as part of God's family. He understood that he was part of God's family, and that informed and governed all of his decisions. Because it says here that this was a, he was choosing rather be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. For some reason, God gave him a keen insight that yes, he could have had wealth on this earth. Yes, he could have had honor on this earth. But yet that was a fleeting thing. And yet the eternal honor was to be known as part of God's family. To be a follower of God. To be, as we would call it today, a disciple. See, this was his core identity. His core identity wasn't being an Egyptian or or being a ruler, but his core identity was that being a part of God's family. Remember, similar to Joseph, remember a few months back we looked at Joseph, and Joseph wanted his bones to be buried in the promised land because he wanted to be known, not as an Egyptian ruler, but as a child of God's. And so because of this lifelong passion, he was so much, Moses was so much more concerned with God's glory. I told you, I think it was last week in the call to worship time, and remember, during this time of the rebellion, this is in Numbers chapter 11, I believe it is, it was during the time of the rebellion that um, the people were, were wanting to kill Moses, and uh, God intervened. I remember telling you this last week, that, that God says to Moses, he says, I'm going to destroy these people. And I'm going to start over and make a great nation with you. I told you last week that that would have been very appealing to me if I was in Moses' shoes. And I think for you too. You have people that you're trying to help. You have people that you're trying to lead. You have people that you're trying to see, follow after God. And they're trying to kill you. 
And God says, don't worry, I'll kill them, and I'll start over with you. That would have been very appealing. But, that, but Moses, he says, no, not so, Lord. And the reason why he begins to intercede for the people, he begins to pray, and he says to the Father, he says, Father, he says, you got to hold back this wrath. He says, because, and here's the reason why. He says, the Egyptians are going to see this. The people of the land that we brought, got brought out of, they're going to see this, and then they're going to say that you weren't big enough, that you weren't uh, strong enough, and that you had to annihilate these people, that these people wouldn't follow you. He says, no, you, you can't do that. Please, don't destroy these people. For your namesake, don't do this. And so what Moses was willing to do there was set aside all of his own glory, all of his own reputation, all of his, the, the ease that he could have had because he wanted God to be glorified. You want to know how to be faithful? That's how you be faithful. When God's glory the pursuit of God's glory trumps every other desire that you have, that's the path to faithfulness. And see, this is what Moses, this is how he was faithful. And I, I, can't, I can't help but point out at this point here that when you look at Moses and the reason why God had all this play out is because Moses was a type of Christ. I want you to see that for a second. I want you to see for a minute here that Moses, he was doing something. He was being the foreshadow of what Jesus Christ would do for us. Remember I said Moses interceded for the people, right? Jesus intercedes for us. The Bible says he ever lives to make intercession for us. Jesus is the go-between between God's wrath and us. And Moses was the go-between between God's wrath and the children of Israel. Jesus is the one who saves us from God's wrath. And it was also the, 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 the light, the, the pursuit and purpose of Jesus' life on earth, his earthly life here in the incarnation, it was to bring glory to the Father, just like Moses wanted God to be glorified. Do you remember when in John chapter 4, when the, the lady and the woman at the well, Jesus was having this discussion with this lady, and the disciples go off to buy food for him to eat because he was tired from his journey, it says in chapter 4, verse 4. And you remember that when the disciples finally get back and they say, hey, here's food for you. Jesus replied, he says, my meat, my food is to do the will of the Father who sent me. He says, my whole reason for existence is to glorify the Father. And you read this over and over again in the Gospels. When you see about Jesus in the incarnation while he lived his earthly life here, it was all to bring glory to God. Wasn't that Moses? You see, so when you go through numbers and when you're reading about this great leader called Moses, don't just say that he was a great leader. I want you to read that and then you worship Jesus Christ because he was the foreshadow of what Jesus does for us. He intercedes on our behalf and he was faithful to the end. We've explained it, we've illustrated faithfulness, but let me apply it in the last couple minutes that we have together. First of all, we need to understand that Faithfulness is a fruit of the Spirit. It's not a fruit of effort or personality. You and I cannot be faithful in the way that, that, that Paul instructs us to in Galatians chapter 5 simply by working hard or simply by having a personality disposition towards loyalty. Because all of us deal with letdown. All of us deal with fickleness. And all of us have fickleness in our own heart. And so this is the reason why he says the fruit of the Spirit is, and he goes through love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, and then he says faithfulness. 
And so if we're going to be a faithful people, we need to understand that this is a spiritual discussion that we're having here. This is not a, a discussion about you trying harder. So if you leave this message to this service today and you think, man, I just got to try hard to be faithful, you've missed it. Okay? What I am saying is that this is a spiritual endeavor that God has called us to do by being faithful, by pursuing God's glory, by being moved by the honor of God in our lives. When that becomes the most important thing for us, that is the path to faithfulness. And so it's not a, a, a fruit of effort or personality. And see, the problem is, is that we often attempt to be faithful for the wrong reason. It's, it's not because we love God and have been transformed by a renewed mind, a renewed identity. Rather, we seek to be faithful for our own reputation's sake. And honestly, that gets exhausting and it's impossible to maintain. And so the, what needs to motivate us is that core identity. You remember, I've talked about this before. The core identity of Moses was not to be an Egyptian. The core identity of Jesus was not to set up his earthly reign at that time, which everyone was expecting him to do. Rather, Philippians says he made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of servants and made the likeness of men. Why? Because he wanted to point people to the Father. And so we can only be truly faithful when we see ourselves or our core identity is that as of we are disciples of Christ first and foremost. That's the way that we're going to be faithful is when we see that our, our, our core identity, who we are, is that we're disciples of Jesus. You see, if, if it's not, if, if our core identity is just about us and just about our own personalities or just about our own pursuits and our own hobbies and our own interests, if that's our core identity, then our first allegiance is to us. Our first allegiance is to ourselves at that point. And so everything we do then becomes, becomes a, a question of does it benefit me or is there a positive impact on me? If my core identity is about, well, I want to pursue my hobbies, I want to pursue my goals and my ambitions, if that's really what is at the core of who we are, then we view every relationship and every opportunity as how does it affect me? And so all of our roles and our relationships are guided by that personal effect. And therefore, then relationships become expendable if I cannot discern a positive experience or benefit to myself. This is why it's the life of a disciple of Christ that says, love your enemies. That's why it's so radical and different for a disciple or follower of Christ. is because our core identity isn't about our own pursuits in life. It's about being a disciple of Christ. But when our core identity is that of a disciple of Christ, then God's glory and God becomes our first allegiance. And that shapes and governs all of our relationships. And therefore, the decisions that we make are on the basis of how they affect God and my relationship with him. No longer about how they just affect me. And so, therefore, that coworker that's really difficult, okay? That really difficult coworker or, or that boss that you have or whatever it is. No longer than it is about your personal ambition in your company. If your allegiance is as a disciple, then as a, your allegiance is to Christ because your core identity is as a a disciple, then you can actually be long-suffering and you can be faithful to the end because your core identity is about God, not about your own career path. So that's how we can put up with difficult relationships and responsibilities that we're asked to do. So therefore, 
All of life's decisions, pursuits, and goals must be informed by being part of God's family, just like Moses and Joseph. I have an illustration I just want to give as I close here. You know, there's different types of glasses. We were talking at dinner. My brother's visiting town here this weekend. We were talking at dinner last night about glasses. And I'm the only person in our family that does not wear glasses. My parents wear glasses. Both my brothers wear glasses. I don't wear glasses. My wife wears glasses. And, um, you know, and my brother and my wife have similar vision without glasses, meaning they're blind, okay? Um, when Anouk and I first met, she wasn't wearing glasses, <laughs> which worked out well for me. Um, <laughs> but um, the, uh, uh, without their glasses, they can't see anything, okay? But once they put glasses on, then they begin to interpret the world around them. And they can see the realities that are there. That before would have been just kind of blurry images. You know, and then there's the idea of, of in the movie theater, these ideas, these like 3D glasses. You put them on and you, all of a sudden you can see the movie in detail that you would never see before. But see, here's the problem is that a lot of times people, particularly in America here, they view their Christianity and their discipleship more like 3D glasses than prescription glasses. You see, what they do is they, it, it, it's fine for the occasion. They, they sit down for the movie or they, they sit down in church and, and they put the 3D glasses on so they can get the experience and, 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 and it's great. But, but when they get up and they leave, they're not going to go walking around town with the 3D glasses on. They discard them and, until the next 3D movie comes out and they need them again. And, and so it, it, it's fine for serving a purpose for their enjoyment, but it doesn't really affect their everyday life. Whereas prescription glasses, on the other hand, that affects everyday life. And the way they can interpret all of the world around them. And if they don't have that, then they don't understand. You see, as disciples of Christ, our Christianity, our fellowship of Christ, is these prescription glasses, and it tells us how we interpret the world around us. It tells us how we need to interact. And so I guess I'll say this, is I just got to ask this question in closing, in closing what, what is your core identity? Is it being a disciple of Christ? And if it is, then that, then that means that it's going to affect all of our, our decisions in life. And that's the path to faithfulness, is when we understand that we are servants of God. And all of our life decisions are to bring him glory and him honor. We're prone to wander, but the Spirit of God draws us back. And so we, we have the opportunity to celebrate the Lord's table this morning. We have the opportunity to worship him around this. And here's what I, I think is very important about this. Is that we have the opportunity to be reminded here at the table of Jesus' faithfulness, Right? I mean, he was faithful to the end, even in death. It, it wasn't uh, that, like, Jesus got to the, the Garden of Gethsemane and, and he understood how difficult it was going to be, that he then says, no, I can't do this. He was faithful to the end. Just like William Carey said, let me be faithful to the end. Jesus was faithful to the end here. And so when you come up to the table here, 
and you take the juice and you take the bread that I'm going to be breaking here in just a second here. When you, when you take this, I want you to think about a couple things. And the first one is I want you to think about God's faithfulness, Jesus' faithfulness. But I also want you to think about something else of what we've talked about this morning, and that is, what's your core identity? How do you view all of life? You see, we're told to be faithful. We're told to be faithful until the end. And the only way that we can do that is if we understand that the reason why we're here, the reason why you have breath in life right now is to bring glory to God. And that's why Moses could be faithful to the end was because he understood it was about God's glory, not his own. And so I want you to think about it as you come up to the table. I want you to be thinking about what is my purpose in life? What do I live for? What am I going to be faithful for? Am I going to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant? And if we're pursuing our own glory, if we're pursuing our own uh, uh, pursuits and and hobbies and vacations and things like that, uh, above pursuing the glory of God, if we're just pursuing, just giving, getting through the rat race and getting through till Friday, getting to the weekend, if that's the reason of our existence, then we're not going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I guarantee it. It brings me no joy to say that. But our core identity has to be that we are servants of Jesus Christ. So as you come to the table, be reminded of God's steadfast love and Jesus' faithful service to the end and ask yourself, what is my core identity? Father, I do pray that we would be faithful to the end. I pray that a pursuit of your glory and your honor And an identity of that core identity of being a follower of Jesus Christ would propel us to not turning away, to not giving up. Lord, I think of that hymn all the time, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Lord, I pray that we would not turn away. He that began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so we're confident that our faithfulness isn't about our effort. It's about walking by the Spirit. It's about following the Spirit and allowing the Spirit of God to transform our minds and our thinking and our core identity. And I pray that that's what would happen for us. We're grateful for Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. We're grateful that we can celebrate your faithfulness at this table. And we pray that you would make us, enable us to live faithful lives. It's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.